0: a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, it is time for another edition of Felony Friday right here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Of course, Felony Friday is the show where each and every single Friday I focus on exposing injustice in this nation's broken criminal justice system. This is one of three unique shows that we have here on the Lines of Liberty podcast. Every Monday, of course, we have a show hosted by Mark Clare, where Mark interviews leading minds in the liberty movement. He delves into interesting philosophical topics, and he also hosts roundtable discussions. So even within the Monday show, it's a little bit of a, of a variety show, and every Wednesday, We have Brian McWilliams, and Brian McWilliams hosts Electric Liberty Land. It's a weekly shot of culture, comedy, and liberty. Sometimes Brian brings on a guest. Sometimes he does solo shows. And last week, Brian had maybe his most epic rant that I've ever heard, talking about the Me Too, hashtag Me Too, and how people were distorting it. An excellent show. If you haven't heard Brian McWilliams, definitely check it out. You can get all three of these shows, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, by subscribing on the Lions of Liberty podcast, subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts, you can find the Lions of Liberty podcast right there. This is the 95th episode of Felony Friday. So that means you'll be able to find the show notes page with links and notes to everything we're going to discuss today at lionsofliberty.com FF95. Today, my guest on Felony Friday is Holly Kuhlman. Holly ascended the corporate ladder over a 16 year period, serving as an administrative needs of senior and executive vice presidents at a large tech company. A lot of you are familiar with it, Hewlett Packard. And during this time, she found herself targeted under a federal investigation. Upon legal advice, upon obtaining legal advice from a lawyer, she took a plea deal to avoid exorbitant costs, which. uh, also avoided taking her case to trial. Holly was ultimately given a 21-month sentence, and for this is for one count of wire fraud with restitution of uh, $954,000. Holly is here to share that story, share what happened there, but more importantly, to talk about her experiences and the abuse and the dangerous conditions that she lived under while in prison. Holly, welcome to Felony Friday.
1: Thank you, John. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, thank you for coming on the show. And this is an important topic, very important topic. And before we get into talking about the stuff that that you've written about in the past, your experiences in prison, a lot of the abuse and dangerous circumstances you were subjected to, I do want you to bring our Felony Friday audience here up to speed on exactly what led you into the circumstances that got you federally investigated, ultimately charged in accepting a plea deal?
1: Sure. As you said, I was an executive assistant that supported senior vice presidents and executive vice presidents at Hewlett Packard in one of their divisions. Uh, over this 16-year period, I had uh, climbed the corporate ladder, moving up with my in my position, And it was actually even kind of a chief of staff role. Um, What landed me with a 21-month sentence was HP was going through several different bribery cases in the UK and in South America. And unbeknownst to me, um, prior to them laying off 32,000 people, and I took a package and left the company, uh, they started looking at expenditures inside the United States and I was asked over several years under certain senior vice presidents and EVPs there to do kind of some again some questionable things meaning they wanted certain purchases at a certain level for the approval process to go only to them and to a certain area of finance for review And so most everything filtered through me for a a two-year period before I left the company. And again, I took the package, left the company, went to work for a different tech firm. And while the internal audit investigator was looking at this particular spend, a year and a half later... I had 13 FBI agents show up at my front door with a search warrant looking for, again, particular items that were purchased on these corporate cards. There was nothing that was found in my home, um, in my vehicles, and again, I was completely surprised, taken off guard. I mean, there's, there's so much trauma that you go through because you just can't believe that you're being put through something like this with a search warrant. I had to find an attorney to figure out what was going on because, again, I had no idea, no inkling that this was something that was being investigated. He was able to find out a little bit of information. This happened on my birthday in 2013, and they did take a laptop and two cell phones and return them to me because, of course, nothing was on them, and they were not purchased by any ill-gotten gains, Money, corporate money. And at that point, again, they said that I was under investigation, uh, that they believed that I had personally spent monies and gained from and again, gained personally from this. June rolls around, um, my attorney is contacted by FBI and the attorney's The United States attorneys. I had two of them. There was one that was going to be retiring, and one was coming in. So I had two, and I also had two FBI agents. We were asked to come down and meet with them. Um, I had, thank goodness, I had kept very good notes, and I also had a lot of information about a lot of these purchases. Again, these were these were purchases not just for clients, but also internal members of the senior team, and. I was able to present that information to the AUSAs and the FBI. They didn't want to see it. They didn't want to look at it. They didn't want to talk to any of my prior bosses to that. They believed I had spent $2.3 million, which was my total spend during my time, my tenure there. And they stated actually every dollar that I spent was was for personal use. So miraculously, during this meeting, when I produced this information, um, their tune changed, and the amount came down to under a million dollars. Again, they were looking to try and make things punitive. Uh, there is a threshold and a mandatory sentencing dependent on loss, an amount of loss. So they were they were wanting me to go to prison, and they were looking for twenty seven to thirty three months. Uh, After I met with them, a week later, I got a plea deal. And my attorney that I now work for, (laughs) we still kind of talk about this. We're a little bit at odds about this. He said, this is the best deal that you're going to get. Even though, again, we tried to give them all this information, proving everything. They really didn't have to do much work. They said, no, we feel that this is the person. And again, the plea deal was 27 to 33, I ultimately was sentenced by the judge to 21 months. It did take a year from the time that I accepted the plea until I was sentenced.
0: So did any of your bosses or any of the senior executives at HP, were they included in any of this federal investigation?
1: You know, no, they were not. Um, every senior VP and EVP had already left the company when they did the layoffs. They were already employed elsewhere. The managers that I had prior to them did step forward, tried to meet with the prosecution, tried to state there's no way that this could happen. And in fact, the prosecutor said, thank you so much for your time. Um, instead of the, they thought that I was running this scheme between 2006 and 2012. They changed their tune and said, well, thank you for your information, Um we'll just change it from 2008 when you left the company to 2012, and we're not going to change the amount of money. So I did have bosses trying to stick up for me, but no, there was no other investigation of the senior senior leadership team.
0: Yeah, I think it's an, it's important to remind uh, our my listeners here that you know so often in the criminal justice system, people see someone like yourself who ends up accepting a plea deal and they look at that and automatically assume that this person yourself in this case has accepted the guilt is admitting doing something wrong when after you, as you've just laid out here you know there's a lot of times where someone will accept a plea deal simply because to fight it would be super expensive and 99% of the time you're not going to win because the prosecution, ninety-nine percent of the time, unfortunately, a lot of the time in today's criminal justice system, they don't care about the truth. They care about getting convictions. They care about continuing to uh, continue to put people either behind bars at a at a lesser charge. Um, they ultimately, a lot of prosecutors don't want to take uh, these uh, these cases to trial. They're happy to take a plea deal because they're not they're not interested in drilling down and actually getting to the truth of, of what occurred.
1: Oh, I, I was absolutely blown away by this. For the When you're going through it and you, you're just wanting to say, okay, this isn't the truth, and they don't really want to hear it again, they created a narrative, yes, it is, it's big business, they don't really want to work that hard. And when I did want to fight this, uh, you know, I was told, again, it was going to be $100,000 to take it to trial with a 99% conviction rate. And you're going – I. I hundred thousand. And with that, with the odds are stacked against you. So yes, you ended up having to sign a plea and everything that they said about you. Yeah. That's what you have to, you have to just own it at that point. It was very difficult. It's just so difficult.
0: I can only imagine. So I guess that's, that's a good question to ask at, you know, you accept your plea. You, you know, it's, it's just a matter of time until you're going to be serving this sentence. What was going through your mind?
1: It. It was again your reputation, your credibility. My. At, at this point, I'm still thinking that I'm not going to go to prison. That there's no way that a judge can look at this and 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 send me. And again, it, it just that. I think that's a, a, a normal phase that most people in this position go through. They're in denial. And it was also difficult because my husband is a was at that time. Was in the military, an officer in the military. My father-in-law, retired officer, went to West Point. It just it was so hurtful and being in these in the media. And again, it's the same regurgitated story over and over about how I personally gained from this, and that's not true. So you again, you're looking over your shoulder, you've had FBI agents in your home, your neighbors are very leery. It's just it's like, how am I going to dig myself out of this? How am I going to go on? I see how people become addicted to alcohol and drugs just to manage their day-to-day. And mind you, I was working at another tech firm during this time going through this. So it was, it was really hard. So
0: w- what ultimately happened, there was a period of time between – the plea deal and actually when you started your sentence, correct?
1: Well, that's when I pulled myself, you know, again, trying to start pulling myself together and I was looking online, trying to find information about what's going to happen next. What is the most important next part of this process once you accept a plea? And part of that is something called a pre-sentence report. And it is a court ordered report that's done by the probation department. They are to be unbiased and they're to write what your circumstances in life, um, it just to basically everything, and make a recommendation of a sentence to the judge. Sometimes they can come lower than the plea agreement, meaning lower uh, for sentencing, or higher. And mine actually came back with higher because, again, they were taking the $2.3 million mark and not what ultimately the AUSA has got down to $954,000. So I spent um, from 2014 in August until August of 2015 trying to get my pre-sentence report as factual as it could be. There are addendums that can be done to it. The reason why is I found out that report is what follows you through the system, meaning the judge reviews it, sentences you with it once you are incarcerated, that's what the Bureau of Prisons looks at. and it's there it's again, it's a narrative. you want it correct because ultimately on your supervised release, that report follows you and it's recommendations. It's just to show you it's to show these the Bureau of Prisons, the courts, the judge, who you really are. So I spent a year trying to fight that and getting it most accurate. Ultimately my judge did read everything he did state that and he came down even lower than the recommended plea agreement to a 21 month sentence. And again remember I'm still at this point when I'm working with a pre-sentence trying to get addendums added I'm thinking again he's not going to sentence me. <laughs> and then as it got closer I realized this happens day after day after day and it's a big it's a big warehouse. It's a big system. It's big business.
0: Once you were sentenced, did you get you get sent ex- directly to Victorville?
1: You know, I I actually had to call uh, the Bureau of Prisons. Uh, it's in Grand pra- Grand Prairie is where the information comes out to your designation, and you have to call the marshal's office. They're actually supposed to send a letter to you to tell you where you're going to be going. I had to call the marshal's office, found out that I would be going to Victorville, a women's federal camp in Adelanto, California. My self-surrender date, which I was lucky because I was out on a uh, bond, I didn't have to be remanded to court after sentencing, uh, I was able to self-surrender on October 5th. I did as much research as I could on Victorville uh, for the fact that Victorville is located Uh, uh, It's a federal correctional complex, a men's penitentiary where, again, very violent offenders are housed. And two men's medium security facilities are located on the same complex as the women's camp, which is the lowest level. And the women's camp has about 330 women, give or take, depending on the month. And with all the, um, again, the men inmates, there's about 5,000 people at this complex. So it is very large. Um, As you can see, it's mostly medium to high violent offenders. And that already raised alarm bells um, before I even went.
0: So, so were these, you know, with all the different types of prisoners, from you know the the more the more violent male offenders to to, to the lesser male offenders to to, to females, a camp. How, well, what kind of separation was there? Was it sep- you know separate buildings? How much distance was was in between each?
1: Great question. So the it's the men's penitentiary was located directly across from the women's camp it is so unsettling here you have a penitentiary with high razor wire around it less than I'd say 60 yards from the women's camp where there again is no no wire it's again it's a low it's it's meant for you can you could walk off the camp um, you don't want to do that but you could the men's medium facilities were located probably less than half a mile away from the camp so but again you have high violent offenders right next to a camp it just doesn't make sense it, I, I just it just still to this day it doesn't make sense um this the women from the camp actually do all of the work on the complex because of the custody level of the men they cannot leave and go out so the women perform all the duties to include having to go into these facilities to work. So that right there raised, you know, so many different alarms. And it's something that the Bureau of Prisons doesn't want the public to know. But yes, um, I can, uh, and in fact, we'll talk a little bit later. The, I worked for the warden at one of the men's medium facilities, and he ended up being stabbed when I was on duty there.
0: Wow, so so. <laughs> so, the, so you would actually go and work in the mm-hmm. male penitentiary where there's violent offenders uh, imprisoned there. what what type I mean, what types of jobs would you would you have to do?
1: The women are required to do everything. So you have everything from food service warehouse where the all of the food, for the complex comes in they're running forklifts they're running you know the big pallets heavy lifting you've got women who are what's called recycling running backhoes um, separating everything for the garbage you have electricians i was once um, in the electrical department but that's changing everything from light bulbs to rewiring all of the high mass lights that we see or what we call on the yard where you know that's kind of the middle of the facilities, and that's at both the men's medium and penitentiary. So you're actually inside. Uh, we do everything. Everything is done by the women. Everything. <laughs> that, this, so, that's
0: absolutely incredible. So were you? I, I mean, guess. was there? What type of uh, security was there to? I mean, was there security there to insulate you from the male population, from you know being you know attacked or, or something like that?
1: So you, you did have, yes, they have levels of security at each of the sites. I never felt that, um, other than the incidences of them trying to, meaning the males often had gang fights, and they would set off incendiary devices for diversionary thing tactics, and all of the officers would respond running to that particular incident. That's the only time that I felt that an inmate, a violent offender could come and do something. Um, You just never, you just never know (laughs) that uh, the staff was, Again, when this particular incident happened, when the warden was stabbed at main line, that's called lunch, I was working and was just getting ready to go through. Each of the entrances have a security almost like airport screening where you have to put everything on an x-ray machine and you go through, and that's to include the women inmates who go and clean or like myself who went and worked in the warden's office. And as I was going through, I was told um, everything, all these alarms started going off, and people started responding, and the entire complex um, basically just shut down. All the officers ran to the area. I was locked into the visiting room, which is at the front where several windows are. And I'm watching this unwind, and I see the women are trying to get back to the camp, And the women haven't been told what to do or how to do it. You can't walk back to the camp because you can get something called an escape charge by doing that. And there's men jumping in the back, officers jumping in the back of their pickups with shotguns weaving around these women. And I thought, what would happen if they dropped a shotgun and shot one of them? It was just chaotic. Again, once the incident was over, once they airlifted the warden, they let me back out. And in fact, what they told me was, you can go back to the camp now. And I said, well, I would assume that the camp is on lockdown because of this incident and I can't walk. And they're like, well, who do I call to come get you? <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know who you call. Is it so did. to know that? <laughs> yeah, it's my. This is the type of the level of it's just so absurd. There's no common sense. So finally we did have a counselor that came to get me, but when I did get back to the camp, there was no accountability. There were no officers for several hours. We did not we were not counted. There are there are counts that you were supposed to have. There's a national count that must go in. And we didn't have anybody to turn the lights on. Nobody came to the kitchen to unlock the kitchen for us to have dinner. So this is the type of thing that their training and expertise, it, it just it didn't make me feel comfortable. I was always more afraid of the officers than I was necessarily the inmates.
0: Any other reasons for that other than what you just went through, why, why you'd be more afraid of the officers? Sure.
1: You have these officers who are, again, at the men's penitentiary in the men's medium, And they go to the lowest level camp, and their attitudes are, again, they're having to deal with very serious offenders. We are low-level women offenders. And they like to treat you as, again, the authority level is just unbelievable. The You just don't know the scrutiny and what they, they're verbally abusive. um, They can sexually harass you. You're just dealing with, again, a very angry, is what I would always say, officer. They don't like going to the female camp because they're always afraid that somebody is going to cry, even rape. So you've got people who are, again, barking orders, and the orders don't make sense. It's just a high level of anxiety because you never know from minute to minute what you're going to get and who you're going to get around you.
0: So one thing you did in a in a response to this is you had a, a blog that you were writing while you were in camp, right?
1: Yes, I, I openly, because again, I'm a stickler for policy. We'll follow the policy. I realize I'm there to, you know, again, there's a punitive thing that's attached to this. But I openly blogged about this particular incident after it already made the news. Um, you know, people we had, there were, deliveries that were made that were turned around so of course public knowledge of what happened to the warden Um, but I did write about the safety of the women and when I went to work after this was published the acting warden um, had pulled me into his office and gave me some choice words and said that basically I was going to be receiving one of the highest level infractions that's given. It was called a shot. It's a 100-series shot because that I had put the lives of the officers in danger by letting people know what happened, even though it was already out there. I was um, given the opportunity, though, to meet with a discipline hearing officer. Normally, there's a there's a time period that happens, but I was able to waive my right to meet with them immediately. And the discipline hearing officer basically stated, personally, I don't like what you wrote for the fact that I like to think I work with professionals. But professionally speaking, you didn't write anything that was untrue. And that wasn't already known. So I'm expunging your infraction. He expunged the infraction and about an hour later, they meaning the officers came in and said are you ready to go and I said ready to go where and they said well you're going to the shoe the special housing unit and Victorville because they don't have a women's shoe they contract with the San Bernardino County Jail and they said we're going to San Bernardino County I said well my shot had been expunged they said that's not what we heard And they took me and they put me in solitary confinement.
0: Who made that call there to move you to solitary confinement?
1: This would be the acting warden at the time and the special investigative service. It's called SIS officers. They decided that this is the level of shot that I should receive. And because of the level, it requires you to go to solitary, or excuse me, to the special housing unit.
0: It was a hundred percent because of you reporting in your blog exactly what had happened.
1: Correct about the safety of the women, but they tried to flip it around, stating that I again put their lives in danger by what I wrote, which didn't make any sense.
0: Yeah how would how would that put their lives in danger? <laughs> uh, I don't even but understand. You- the- yeah,
1: you can't have the this particular conversation. I tried having this conversation, and, and again, I'm condensing a lot. It was, it was, I received personal threats from the SIS officer saying that um, he would see to it that I would never be able to come back to Victorville, that I, he would see that I could never publish my blog again, um, and that I would suffer. How would I like to have the FBI... Um, look into the possibility that I had something to do with the warden stabbing, as a threat. Wow! So this is the type again. When I say you're, it, it's these officers are just out of control.
0: Yeah, that's just straight up thuggery. That's it amazing. is straight
1: up thuggery. And you and I again. He he looked at me and he said, "Who who's going to believe you? Who is going to believe you?" <laughs> They'll believe me before they believe you. And as an inmate, in again, with a felony on your record, yes. Um, so the disciplinarian officer had the final word. He did expunge it, but it didn't stop them. Um, they did take me to San Bernardino County, and the directive was to put me in solitary confinement. And I was in solitary confinement for 60 days. And a lot of people don't understand that. Your judge cannot help you. Your attorney cannot help you. You are owned by the Bureau of Prisons. They do not have to respond to any inquiries as to why you were there. Um, They don't have to say anything to anybody. And again, I didn't know I was going for 60 days. Every day that came and went, um, I didn't know how long I would be there. It wasn't something that said she'll be there for 60 days. It just happens to be on the 60th day. Um, the sheriffs finally came in and told me that I was getting transported. But again, I didn't know where. Um, the sheriffs don't tell you. But when I was signing release papers, I happened to see that I would be transferred back to Victorville.
0: So when you were in the shoe for the 60 days, yes. Uh, what, what type of – did you have any other – Interaction with any other humans. What, what was what was that experience like?
1: So, John, this is probably this is the worst. I always said that my sentencing or having to go through this was the worst, but no, living being put in solitary confinement in a cell that is five feet by ten feet, concrete with a toilet with a sink that has no hot running water and a trickle of cold water that's brown. You are in, I was, San Bernardino County happens to be, the women's solitary area is downstairs. So it's in a basement-like setting. It's freezing cold. The lights are fluorescent. They're on 24-7. There is no clock. You are locked in your cell. The only time that you are out of your cell is for one hour. And that may be at 5 a.m. It may be at 7 a.m. And the only, when I say out, that means right in front of your cell, there's a walkway that's, again, all barred, but you can walk up and down. There are two phones that are at the end of the hallway that you can call, but the phones don't come on until 6 a.m., and again, it's very expensive. You're calling collect, um, and you get one hour. I'm also next to what is I say it's a small closet, and it was filthy black. When I first walked by it, I didn't realize that was going to be the shower. And there is no shower curtain. And you, I was like, there's no way I'm going to take a shower in that. But you get to the point where you have to take a shower in that. I'm next to women who are screaming 24-7. Um, there's mental health problems. There are people with staph infection, MRSA. There are, this again, these are people that are being transported or waiting for court at the county level. So not only did I experience what life is like at a federal prison, I found out what county jail is like and in solitary. After that one hour, you're back in your cell and that's it. I had two, I had access to two library books while I was there for 60 days and you're actually supposed to be able to get a library book. They give you a golf pencil and a couple pieces of paper when you first get there, but anything else you'd have to purchase, and it's extremely expensive.
0: I don't know if you saw, I think it was last week's 60 Minutes, Oprah had a uh, had an interview on 60 Minutes talking about Pelican Bay. and I mean, the one good thing about it is it seems that the state of California, at least, is pivoting away from... Really, there was a time in the in the '80s and '90s when they were expanding uh, their use of solitary confinement. They thought it was this you know this breakthrough. It was the greatest thing to to put people in solitary confinement in order to contain gang violence and stuff like that. When when in reality, it you know the, when you lock people in a tiny little cell for um, you were in for 2 months with, which is awful terrible um you know people spend there are people years, for years decades 20, 20 yes. years in there and they lose their minds um,
1: and that's what you do do because it's deprivation of of almost everything it is uh, you don't speak you don't talk there's nothing i mean you're in there you're a caged it's inhumane so i think they did a very good she did a very that was a very good interview that they did an exposé on that so yes my experience is the same type of symptoms that that what they were showing. And I I'll never forget when they came meaning the case manager and my and the secretary for the unit where I was at at Victorville came to pick me up. She looked at me and said, "I bet you think Victorville's a palace now." And I said, "Indeed." And that's all I said. So when I did return to Victorville, I found it very interesting. The guards and the officers were not allowed to speak about me or any of my information. And when I questioned or asked for a copy of the original infraction, I was told that it didn't exist and that my time in San Bernardino County Jail was swept under the rug. It was never on any of my formal paperwork. So it's like it didn't happen. (laughs) <laughs> the only the only way that I can prove that I was there is that I had a registration number at San Bernardino County.
0: That's unbelievable. So the, so they yeah. they just think people won't believe you or I mean it's-
1: they knew that they sent me on it with no infraction and having it expunged and they made a mistake and were very worried of what I was going to do about that. So, instead of addressing it, they really, they did leave me alone, meaning the officers no longer, I wasn't getting any harassment, um, the type of job, really they left me alone.
0: So, ultimately, you, when did you get out of uh, the Victorville camp?
1: I was, uh, my, January 5th of this past year in 2017, and then I went to the halfway house, which is something that we all, meaning in the federal system, you are mandated to do. You're going to get some form of halfway house, even if you have a home to go to and a job. So it's just another, you're moved along, and again, where that pre-sentence report that I talked about is just passed on to the next set of again group that you have to have to go through
0: and while you're in the halfway house there's certain things did you have to go Mm -hmm. out and, and get some type of job when you were in the halfway house or
1: you do the requirement is for you to go to something called home confinement you have to complete what you have to complete these absurd classes and when i say classes this is your taxpayer dollars are paying for this These are because the halfway houses are contracted with the Bureau of Prisons. So you're still under the Bureau of Prisons purview. But you have to take things like for reentry, like, for example, how to find a job. And on one of the slides that they showed, it was contact the yellow pages. Get the yellow pages out to look for a job. (laughs) and I couldn't believe that. So, again, these are the type of classes that you must fulfill. You must have a home line installed um, with just basic, no call waiting, no answering. You have to, again, look for employment or already have employment. It must be full-time. This particular halfway house I was at, you could not contract, so meaning you couldn't be an independent contractor. You couldn't have a 1099. They wanted a W two paying job. While you're at the halfway house, you pay twenty to twenty five percent of your gross pay to stay there until you meet the requirements to send your to be sent to home confinement. So really there's no incentive for them to send you to home confinement because then they don't get paid. There was a law that passed that stated once you're in home confinement you no longer pay your, your gross salary to them.
0: Right. So they, they have an incentive to, to keep you there. To keep you. And, they do. Yeah. On top of that, with uh, you know, there's been some budget cuts. I've heard in I don't know if it's it's mostly at the federal level. So there's less and less halfway houses. So you're getting people backed up in prison who can't get into halfway houses, and then you have this incentive where they're not anxious to to push people out because they're they're getting money from them.
1: That's what's happening. Actually, the federal funding has been cut, and they're they are now going to start holding um, inmates for most of their 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 prison time. their sentence. So once uh, once I got to the halfway house, and I already had a consultant job scheduled, everything was great. And then they said no, that you can't consult. You cannot be an independent contractor. So the other issue was I couldn't go out after a certain radius to work. So that really put a damper on it because these halfway houses are not in the best part of town. So the type of work that I can do are, you know, in a corporate building or hospital or, and everything was too far. So I ended up having to stay, um, three and a half months at the halfway house for my full time.
0: You got out of the halfway house when
1: I got out of the halfway house on April the 21st and Then where I went to the halfway house, I was in South Carolina, John. Um, My family, even though I was from San Diego, California, I did my halfway house in South Carolina. My family was willing to give me um, their residence to stay there. We thought it would be better for me to transition into a smaller town, smaller place. Um, Unfortunately, uh, that didn't happen. I was at the halfway house for the full time, so... Once I was out, I wanted to come back to be with my husband in California. So I did put in for a supervised uh, supervision transfer, which you can do. And I came back to California on May the 23rd of this year
0: big of a shock has it been for you to you know get go from the camp to the halfway house now back into regular life has it has it been a big a big adjustment
1: it's again you go and once I, I was done with the halfway house and transferred back to California I'm on supervised release and that means I have a probation officer and again another person that it's you're under their discretion and I got here May 23rd, and I started to work for my former criminal defense attorney's law firm. They needed a paralegal on June 8th. And it is just, it's been very difficult on the restrictions that she's placed. Um, again, they don't make common sense. It just depends on who you get. Not everybody has these problems. But coming back, it was overwhelming. The first stop we made was, of course, Walmart and just being in a large place with loud noise. And it was just, it was a little overwhelming. (laughs) I wasn't used to it. I wasn't used to sitting on a couch. I had sat on a metal chair for, you know, almost 18 and a half months whether it was at the camp or at the halfway house. I, so it was strange being walking room to room or being in my own shower and not wearing shower shoes. So it's t- as of yesterday, so I've been home for five months. And I'm transitioning. I'm, I'm better. But again, I still I don't trust as easy at all.
0: So what would you like to do now that you're out? Are you going to continue working for your uh, your your attorney or what, would you like to go into a different field go back into corporate America what, what are your plans going forward
1: well I'm going to stay away from corporate America um, I know how that works and I've seen that show what I want to do is I want to help other women through this particular process um, again people make mistakes and that's for again uh, there are going to be some punitive aspect to it it doesn't need to be as this as inhumane as it is But I want to uh, uh, have people understand. one thing that my current, where I work, for my attorney, that we've had discussions is you need to prep your clients better. And even when I was at Victorville, the number one thing that everybody would come to me to tell me their story so I could write it was if I only knew what was going to happen, even if I would still end up in prison, better prepared would have been, so much easier for their themselves and their family, so I want to do prison consulting um, helping people guide through the system of what's going to happen and that is something that I've started my five oh one c three company and we'll be doing
0: well that's uh that's fantastic there's definitely demand for that in fact my my guest on last week's show Jennifer Meyer she does something similar um focuses uh more on uh, young women and and girls and um, daughters of with, with uh, incarcerated parents on uh, on helping them and helping families deal with that situation.
1: So Jennifer and I know each other. And in fact, we will be getting together um, in two weeks. Fantastic. So we're also working on some things together.
0: Well, well that is uh, that's absolutely fantastic. And before I let you go, we've run over in time, unfortunately. But before I let you go, if you could just let my Felony Friday audience know, um, where they can uh, maybe follow you on social media or if they have questions for you, if they can reach out to you, anything like
1: that? Absolutely. So you can follow me at wall street com, and soon to be launching is something called pinkladyprisonconsultants.com. lady com, And of course, under Holly Coleman, all you have to do is just pull me up. You'll have my contact information.
0: Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Holly.
1: Thanks,
0: John. I want to thank Holly Kuhlman for coming on today's show. Really amazing story that I think a lot of people don't understand. Even going to a minimum security camp, how bad prison can be, how little control you actually have over your life while in prison, even in a minimum security camp like that. Holly just trying to abide by the rules but uh, Shine a Light let people know on the outside by way of a blog the really the injustice and the terrible conditions and the harassment and she was she was suffering from well inside that Victorville women's camp and for that even though they weren't supposed to and they she went through the process and they, and they weren't going to punish her she still they did They went around that, and they put her in solitary confinement for 60 days, and then just pretended it didn't happen. Just, eh, it didn't happen. Just forget about that. But Holly didn't forget about it. She's speaking out about it, and I'm excited to see where she goes with her prison consulting business. She obviously is connecting with uh, some great people in the criminal justice movement, and I'm looking forward to seeing what Holly does in the future. Guys, they don't have much time. I got to jump on a jet plane to Arizona tomorrow. So very, very early tomorrow, actually. So I'm not going to say much at all. In fact, I'm just going to say one thing. Join the Lions of Liberty Pride. If you haven't yet, join right now. Go to lionsofliberty.com slash support. And by joining the Pride for 25 bucks a month, you get a monthly conference call with us. You get two free t shirts, you get a free koozie, you get access to our secret Facebook group, and you get a massive discount at our Lines of Liberty store where you can get even more merchandise from us. If you can't afford 25 bucks a month, you can do 10, you get a little bit less, you don't get the conference call, or you can do five, you get even less than that, you don't get any free shirts. At 10, you still get a a free t-shirt. At 5, you don't get a free t-shirt. You still get all of our great content, our Conspiracy Corner roundtables that we have, our Degenerate Gambler roundtables that we have for every week with myself, Brian McWilliams, and Rico. Also, tons of other uh, just uh, offshoot you know, bonus episodes that we come up with, some bonus Is It a Crime episode. Sometimes we'll have a guest that we have on that'll stay on for 10, 15 minutes. And, you know, we'll get some questions from people in our lines of Liberty Pride. We'll ask in the Facebook group for questions. You know, we'll give another 5, 10, 15 minutes to a guest on the show. And that's just for the people in the Pride to hear. So please, if you haven't joined, join the lines of Liberty Pride We got to get more people in the pride because that's how we're going to grow this show, guys. If you like this show, if you want to support the show, please join the Lions of Liberty pride, lionsofliberty.com slash support. That's all I got. Thank you all for listening. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fire is a liberty burning.